Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. Robert Sutton said, what a great hymn. And then he came over to me and said, as opposed to some of your bonehead hymns. <laughs> That's true. It's true. What can we say? Got to tell the truth. Gentlemen, I bet you're going to be glad to get off of two verses that we've been on for nine weeks. That's called exegesis, drawing it out of the text. Sometimes I felt like I was putting stuff into the text, actually. We spent so much time on it. But the fruit of the Spirit is a very important concept. It's an important experience. And it's significant for us from time to time to look at what, what is a Christian man supposed to look like and remind ourselves of what our lives should be noted for. And uh, it's very helpful to look at those things. And it's also very encouraging to know that's what the Holy Spirit will do for us. We can't work that up within ourselves. We lean on the Holy Spirit to do that in us and through us. But we want to, we wanna, in one way, we're going right back to where we started. In another way, we're, we are moving forward. We're going to look at 10 verses this morning. And I'm excited about chapter 6, it, uh, not just because it's our last chapter, but because it, it really has some very, very significant truths in it half of which we'll look at today and half next week. And then our last two amen, we'll have special guest speakers. You'll want to be here for that, and they'll uh, address other important things in our lives. But when we started our study of Fruit of the Spirit, one of you asked me, well, aren't you going to spend more time on love? And because that, I don't know if you remember, but when we first started looking at the Fruit of the Spirit, we talked about the theology, really, of it, the context, the, the whole context from verses 16 to 26. And we didn't take a lot of time to look at love. Uh, and I, I think I told you that we'd be coming back to that. And really, today is the day when we come back to that. Because the first part of chapter 6 really deals with love and uh, focuses on that love and tells us a little bit more of what it means. Well, let's read together the first 10 verses, and then we'll see how all that works out in relationships. Let's read together. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Wow. Let's read that one again. Uh, anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor, including their cars and their vacation spots. No, let's, let's, let's say that. Uh, just teasing, just teasing. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. When Jesus left this planet at his ascension, he made something really clear to his disciples. 
And that was the, the Great Commission, the mission that he gave us to go into all the world and make disciples, to go into every ethnic group and make disciples, to teach them everything that he had taught us, to baptize them into the church and to enable them to grow up in the Lord. And then the Lord promised that in that mission, He would be with us always. And He gave that in every one of the Gospels. You'll find it in the book of Acts. So we have at least five very clear expressions of Jesus' sort of last will and testimony, His last charge and instructions to His disciples. And I don't know about you, but, uh, but when someone who's dying or leaving me gives me a last instruction, it sticks with me. I'll never forget my dad's last words before he died. And they were instructions and had to do with the Lord, had to do with you. Uh, and it wasn't like my dad. He wasn't a real, he wasn't a real uh, religious man, if you will. He was a Christian. But he, he was a Luther Christian, kind of a rough Christian. And, uh, but he gave me some instructions about, about my ministry. It was the last thing I ever heard him say as he was dying of cancer. And believe me, I remember that. Uh, and I'm sure the disciples really remembered what Jesus said right before he departed. Obviously, it ends up in their in their own Gospels and so on. Well, before Jesus died, there was a similar experience where in the upper room, Jesus is giving them his last instructions before he goes to the cross. And once again, of course, John especially uh, recounts all that for us, those, those last words that he gave in the upper room. But it's really quite impressive when you look at it and see the message that Jesus was getting across. He could have said a lot of things to them. But he really focused on one thing. Leave your finger in Galatians 6 and turn back to, to John chapter 13 where you remember he washes their feet. He takes off, this is a page 1730 in your Bibles. He takes off his outer garments, gets down on his knees, and he washes the dirty, stinking feet of his unworthy disciples. And it just shocks them all, especially Peter, who says, Lord, you, you'll never wash my feet. And, he, and then he... Jesus explains what it means, and then Peter says, well, just give me a bath. And Jesus says, no, the, the feet will be fine. Uh, <laughs> typical Peter. Uh, but then Jesus explains the meaning of his washing their feet. If you'll look, for example, in verse um, 15, he says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And later on that night, uh, Jesus said in verse 34, he gave them a new command, a new command I give you, a new command. So here it's kind of like you've got ten commandments, let me give you an eleventh. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then, you know, in chapter 14, he tells them not to be afraid, just to trust in God. He's going to prepare a place for them. If you keep turning to chapter 15, we pick up this theme again. Look at verse 9 in chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. 
I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Isn't that amazing? Here in the upper room, Jesus and John obviously remembers, remembers these things. Uh, Jesus was saying, I'm going to give you a new commandment tonight. I'm going, to, I'm going to demonstrate it graphically, memorably, by washing your feet so that you'll never forget it. And he performs that act. It's, it's, almost, like a, it's almost like a skit that he's performing, humbling himself so they'll never forget the sensation of the master actually washing their feet. They could still feel it years later, thinking about it. Jesus did that so they would never forget this. He says to them, now I want you to learn this lesson. Your master has done that for you. You do it for each other. And he's saying, here's how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you've memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith. No. Here's how the world will know that you're my disciples, that you build big, beautiful buildings with plenty of places to park. No. This is how they'll know that you're my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. And there's the definition of Christian love. It's the way Jesus loved us. That's the reason that Christian love has always been peculiar and distinctive. It's sacrificial love. It's love that involves our humility, sometimes our humiliation. It's love that involves forgiveness and forbearance. It's love that's based upon a power outside of us because we see in this text in Galatians, you can turn back to Galatians now, you see in the Galatians text, text that our love is coming from another place. It's not just something we work up. And that's the kind of love we normally feel, the love for our children, the love for our grandchildren. That just works right up out of your viscera. You know, you're connected, uh, you know, usually by DNA. You know, you're connected to these kids. You know, you just have this natural affection for them. Sometimes it's so much, it's overwhelming. But the love that we're told about we're to have for one another is the love of Christ. It comes from outside ourselves. We take it in by the Holy Spirit. That's the reason you've got to live a Spirit-filled life in order to love the way Jesus is telling us to love, to humble ourselves before one another, to build each other up, to forgive each other's sins, not just to tolerate each other, but then he says in chapter 15, no, here's what a real friend does. He lays down his life for his friend. It's the David and Jonathan thing. David was willing to lay down his life to have Saul throw a spear through him rather than to be disloyal to his friend David, who was the Lord's anointed. And a brother in Christ is the Lord's anointed. So we, don't, we, we do everything to protect one another. Well, that's, that's how important love is. It is the insignia of the church. It is the mark that sets us out. And we have to keep asking ourselves, would the world recognize us as the followers of Jesus Christ by the way that we love? Well, let's look at the text that's before us because really what's happening is now the apostle is moving into practical applications of this love. He's coming right out of his teaching on the walking in the Spirit, and he's saying here is the chief implication. You notice the first fruit of the Spirit he mentioned was love, and now he's going to apply uh, the idea of love to our practical everyday living. Now, if you look at the very end of chapter 5, you'll see the contrast. He says, let us not become conceited. You can't, you can't wash somebody's feet if you're conceited. 
So washing someone's feet is the opposite of conceit, the opposite of arrogance, the opposite of me first. So he says, let us not become conceited, provoking each other. So rather than provoking each other to enmity and strife and all the works of the flesh, we're going to spur one another on to love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. And he says, and not envying each other. Rather than envying what somebody else owns or envying someone else's reputation or envying someone else's job or envying someone else's wife, we take delight in the good that's coming to our neighbor. So it's just the opposite of what the natural man uh, will do in relationships. But the first thing we're going to see then in in verses 1 through 5 is that the Spirit transforms our relationships. The Spirit transforms our relationships. You can't become a Christian sincerely, authentically, and not have all of your relationships transformed. And remember, in relationships, there's only half of that that you control, and that's yourself. So actually, if you wanted to perfect the language I just gave us, it is that the Spirit perfects our participation in relationships. It's just like marriage. You can't make yourself have a good marriage. All you can do is be a good husband. You can't have a great family. All you can do is be a great father. And you need to stay focused on that. And a lot of times I notice in teaching on marriage, you know, we all come with our wives, we go to these seminars, and we're looking at our spouse saying, well, yeah, you, you, you listen to that, you know? <laughs> you know, boy, if you just drag her in there, if she'll just listen to her part, this thing will be fine. And we're often thinking about, you know, I wish the other person would read the Bible more often, you know, kind of check out what they're supposed to be doing. And I wish this person would repent more often. I wish, I wish she was just nicer. I wish... She was just more thoughtful of me and my concerns. You know, she would just have me on her mind every once in a while. That's, that's the normal thought process. That's the, that's the thought process of the flesh. The thought process of the Spirit is, Lord, help me to be the man you want me to be regardless of how this person is responding to me. My one agenda is me. And that's all that I control. And as a matter of fact, that's my biggest problem. It is me. That's my problem. Lord, help me. Help me to love her regardless of how she's behaving. What if Jesus got up this morning and said, well, I want to help those men who help themselves today. How many of us would he be helping? Big fat zero. Because we don't have a very good habit of helping ourselves very much at all. We are men who constantly need forbearance and love. That's the way Jesus has loved us. So when the Spirit comes into your life in fullness, He begins to change your focus from blaming other people to assessing yourself and offering yourself up to the Lord as the one who needs to change. So the Spirit transforms our relationships by transforming us. And how are we transformed? Well, look at this first line. We care for the fallen. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin. So distinctively Christian love cares for those who are messing up. Cares for those who are making a mess out of their lives. Cares for those who are actually hurting other people as well as themselves. 
They care for the fallen. And you'll notice how they care for them. Uh, they actually restore them. He says, brothers, if any of you is caught in a sin, that doesn't mean caught by the police, <laughs> caught by the principal. <laughs> it means if you catch him, any of you, and it doesn't mean that you're acting like a policeman. Uh, it's like the, the woman who called the policeman and said, a uh, policeman came to her apartment. She said, and he said, what's the problem? She said, the problem is the man across the, <clears throat> the courtyard here, he's in, undressing in, in front of his window. And it's obscene. And the policeman looks out her window and he says, I can't even see his window. And she said, well, you get up on this stepladder and you'll see it. <laughs> and sometimes people in the church are like that. They're getting up on stepladders and snooping around and trying to find wrong things with each other. That's not what the apostle is talking about. He's just saying, when it becomes evident that someone's in, in sin, uh, then you're to take care of them. So, Brothers, he calls us brothers, family. When your brothers are caught in trouble, you take care of them. You intervene on them when they're, uh, when they're caught in sin. And if you'll leave your fingers there, turn with me to Matthew 5, and I want us to see how Jesus teaches on this matter. This is common to Jesus and the apostles. They teach on this often, that the church is a community of Love. It really, it's a community of distinctively Christian love. It's different than anything else, including most of our natural families. And if we're following Christ, we are perforce engaged in community building, as well as nation building. We'll get to that some other day. But we're involved in community building primarily, and that's the church. And notice in chapter 5 how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when he says uh, in, uh, this is on page 1551, Matthew 5, verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now here's a case where you're the one caught. You catch yourself. You, it comes to your conscience in the midst of worship, which is the most important thing that the Christian does in private, in his family, and in the church. The most important thing we do is worship. If you're engaged in the most important thing, which is, which is worshiping the Lord, and you're right in the middle of the offertory, well, let's, let's, let's heighten it. You're right in the middle of the Eucharist. You're getting ready to take the bread and the cup. And it dawns on you. You've sinned against your brother and he has a charge against you. Jesus says, just drop it right there and go over and be reconciled to your brother. Years ago in a communion service, I just said, why don't we just take, all take a break? This is in church. Let's just all take a break. And anybody who needs to talk to somebody, you just go talk to them. That's a pretty busy church for a few minutes. <laughs> the Lord says, this, you're a community of love. And here's my command to you. Love one another. Love when it's difficult. Love when someone's misbehaving. And you love when you're misbehaving. You get things reconciled. Turn over to chapter 18. You'll find that in Matthew, uh, the, the whole gospel is kind of made up here of five major sermons that Jesus gives. The first one's the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interspersed with his deeds, miraculous deeds to illustrate it. But in chapter 18, we get one of his sermons. And it really is a sermon on the community. 
And if you'll look at verse 15 in particular, he speaks to this issue of caring for the fallen. He says, if your brother, this is Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, <clears throat> take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So you see how, how rugged this love gets, that we discipline each other on this love, and that the only way you can maintain good standing in the community of love is if you're open to this love. And if you're not open to this reconciling love, where we're reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, if the church is healthy, they should excuse you from the community if you do not want to participate in this love. And so he says, if someone sins against you, you go to that man. What do we normally do? We go to some other man. We talk about them. We rattle on about them. We try to build a party against them. We try to split people up against them. We try to make ourselves feel better by wreaking vengeance against them. That's not what the community of love does. Community of love, we go straight to that person. We care for the fallen. Now, in this case, in their fallenness, they've actually hurt us. But we still go to them, not just for our own sakes to, to get restitution. We go for their sakes. Because in sinning against us, we're quite aware that the main thing is there's a breach in our relationship. And furthermore, there could be a breach in his relationship with the Lord. Therefore, we're obligated. For example, if you catch someone in, or if someone sins against you, what's happened is you have ipso facto caught them in a sin. So if anyone has been caught, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And when we and usually if you're in if you're in a church and you're vitally involved and you participate in it, if you're sinning, you usually will get caught because the sin is normally against somebody else. So we don't sweep things under the rug like most churches do, and like most dysfunctional families do, and like most friendships do, because they're not deeply embedded in the love of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love that cares for each other when they're fallen. And you see how you do it here. You go first of all yourself because you're seeking to allow that person to repent and to be restored without ruining his reputation. Now, if, if you're only looking for vengeance, you don't care who else you talk about you don't, or talk to. You don't care where else you gossip. But if you are reconciling that relationship, not only for your own sake, but for his sake, and you're seeking his welfare, you will protect his reputation all along the way. And you will normally have a vision for that reconciliation. You will begin to taste it and hope for it and pray for it. And you are thinking, how will I manage this reconciliation process in a way that after we're reconciled, my brother will thank me for the way that I handled it. That's what you want to keep in mind. Imagine a reconciled relationship. And I've had them go on for years. I think I've told you before about a man who wrote me seven years after he badly misbehaved and said, I'm such an ass, can you ever forgive me? And I drove 200 miles just to have lunch with him, to tell him one thing, your sins are forgiven you. And to tell him another thing, I love you. 
And sometimes it takes years, and, you, and, and it's very painful when it takes years. But you keep imagining and hoping for. And, you know, love hopes. Love imagines what can be because we know the grace of God that can overwhelm us and draw us out of our sin. Certainly the grace of God will draw anyone out of their sins when God takes His pleasure on that person. So you imagine a reconciled relationship. And if you're imagining Him as friend and reconciled and loving you, you want to protect His reputation. And there are times, aren't there, when we have had reconciled relationships and then we had to apologize for the things that we said about that person in the process of wanting to get reconciled. So you control yourself and you focus your energies and you'll find that you do a lot better job of going to that person if you haven't already talked to three other people. You pray about that relationship or pray about that encounter and you go to him and you say, you know, I may not have understood this. I, I know I don't know everything, but here's the way I experience this. And it seems to me likely that you committed this sin. And I don't know. Could you please tell me? It seems to me that's the case. Now, Jesus says in this text, if your brother repents, you've won a brother. And he will, the relationship may not be exactly the same, but he's got respect for you. And he has an affection for you. And certainly it's better off than it was. It may take a while for him to feel the warmth of that relationship for a while. It may take a while for you to feel it. Sometimes, honestly, relationships never get that warm again. But they're truly reconciled in principle. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't work, you don't stop there. Why? Because you've got a brother in real trouble. It's really no evil. It's no wickedness on your part to have evil perpetrated against you. The real problem is for the perpetrator. They're the ones in trouble. As we'll see in this text, we've already read it. Those who sow to the Spirit reap eternal life, but those who sow to the flesh reap destruction. And when you've got a man who's unrepentant in your midst, you don't know but that his relationship with the Lord doesn't exist. Maybe he joined the church like I did and never really knew the Lord. That happened to me. And I got caught, as I've told you, trying to be an evangelist without knowing the Lord. Some people get caught because they sin against each other and don't <laughs> repent. And they get caught red-handed and eventually get led to the Lord. Many people have been led to the Lord through simply going through biblical process of reconciliation, demonstrating the unique love of Jesus Christ. So if that one-on-one -on -one encounter doesn't work, Jesus says, get a brother. And I would suggest get a mature brother. You might even get an elder in your church or a deacon in your church. Get a mature brother and go back and you say, look, obviously we're at an impasse and we didn't make pro progress last time because either you're right and I didn't agree with you or I'm right and you didn't agree with me. We need a third party. We need help. And, it's, and I still have in my mind uh, this charge against you. It seems to me that this is what you did. I'd like for this third party to hear it. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, take it to the church. And those of you who are Presbyterians, uh, we, we believe that would mean take it to the church in a responsible way. In the responsible way in a Presbyterian church, take it to your elders. And they are to mediate. They are to get to arbitrate. And they are to regulate. They're to get in this relationship with you and help it get right. And if you're an elder in a Presbyterian church or you're a leader in a church that doesn't have that same polity and you're not willing to handle cases like that, what you're really saying is 
we don't care about reconciled relationships in our church. The reason I say that is relationships in churches get so screwy and squirrely that if you don't have a group of men who are absolutely committed to it, it's not going to happen. If you don't have a group of men who are invested with authority from the church, the church gives them the authority to intervene on these relationships, you're not going to get them because we're bad. I'm bad. And I get so mad or angry, I'll just let something go. I won't, I won't continue in the process unless someone's holding me accountable for it. We're all that way. And the only way you get the distinctive love of Christ is when you take the distinctive methodology of Christ. And if Christ thought you could do it on your own, he wouldn't have given you Matthew 18. But he gave you Matthew 18 because he's quite aware you cannot do this on your own when you get cross-wise with somebody. You need the church. And the church is to be doing this. And frankly, I think the church is massively failing. We have all kinds of relationships in churches that are not intervened upon. How many marriages just break up and we say, oh, that's just too bad. You know, maybe they'll join another church. We don't get involved in broken marriages in most of our evangelical churches. Uh, when, when guys get out of sorts with each other in the business community, oh, you know, business is business. Well, business ain't business unless it's the business of the Lord. And the real business is the business of the Bible in dealing with each other in loving relationships. And that's far more important than whether you keep your house or your business goes bankrupt. It's far more important. And we need men who believe that and who believe it so much they'll, they'll take the, the Jesus agenda and work it into life and into community. And if we had communities like that in every neighborhood in Memphis, Memphis would be a different place. What Memphis needs more than anything else are communities in every neighborhood of this city who are doing that. And when they do that, you'll find that the poor are no longer poor. You'll find that the homeless are no longer homeless. You'll find the hungry are no longer hungry. And you'll find that the uneducated will all of a sudden get educated because we're in community and we love each other like brothers. That's what we need. And so wherever you live, in whatever neighborhood you live, whatever community you belong to, make your contribution to its being a real loving Christian loving community. It's rugged love. It's what some in the 20th century were calling tough love. That's what it is. It's tough. It's rugged love. It's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has loved us that way. And he didn't care about whether he was popular with us from day to day. What he cared about was getting us home safely and having us having a reconciled relationship with our Father. So that is caring for the fallen. And you'll see, of course, uh, listed there, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. And Paul says the same thing there. You've got this community has got to work. And when there's sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5 going on, you need to intervene on it. You can't just say, well, you know, we're going, all going to heaven. What difference does it make? That's basically what they were saying when a man was sleeping with his stepmother, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and Paul says even the pagans don't do that. What are you all thinking? You're bragging because you, you say you're free because of the grace of God. He says the grace of God changes your life. And you all need to deal with it. And then in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, people were suing each other. Now, I'm all for suits. I mean, I'm all for civil courts. We need civil courts. And they're, they're of the Lord. He's ordained them. And we need to submit to them and use them. But when it comes to a brother personally with another brother, we don't use the civil courts except to validate the legal implications of anything we've resolved among ourselves. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, aren't you better off just being wronged than to have to go before people who don't know the Lord and ask them to arbitrate differences between you and someone else who does know the Lord? Don't you realize you're going to judge angels one day and you're asking unbelievers to judge you? What, what got in your head? He said, you're, you're better off to lose whatever case you've got if it's a personal case against a brother. And once again, let me say, how many of our churches are taking seriously the kind of conflicts that we get into in the business and civic community? Should, there not be, should we not demand reconciliation within the church because we are the beloved community? We're the ones who get reconciled to each other, and we regulate each other's lives. So if we're aware in our church that two business guys are beating heads against each other, we get in there and say, you guys are all right? I mean, is this normal competition, or is there something awry here? You all need us to get involved and mediate this. And we don't do it perfectly, but you've you got to give it your best shot because of what Paul and, and the Lord Jesus are saying. You've, you've got to be a, a functional family. And for some of us in our churches, this would mean taking on a ministry we haven't had before. Could I suggest something? Why don't you take it on? And maybe there's someone in your church who's particularly gifted at, at arbitration. Maybe you have a lawyer who's particularly good at helping people negotiate. But let me just give a word of warning here. Ecclesiastical courts and arbitration are different from civil arbitration. Civil arbitration is only concerned about the property issue between two parties and that justice would, would reign, and that's a good thing. We want civil justice on property issues, but the church courts are concerned about something else. They're concerned about equity on the property, but they're also concerned about reconciliation in the relationship. And you won't find the judge downtown saying after you finish your case, now you all make up, shake hands, and hug each other. <laughs> Forget that, Your Honor. You know, you just, just crossed your boundary. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It doesn't have anything to do with him, but it has to do with you. And so in the beloved community, when we have our fights, and brothers, you know, get into fights. If you have a brother, I have a brother. <laughs> I can tell you about some fights. So brothers get into fights, and then we resolve our fights. And we do kiss and make up, and we support each other and love each other. We're loyal to each other. And then we'll fight again later because boys have a tendency to do that. But we're going to live in family. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18. It's what Paul is saying in Galatians 6. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And believe me, this is so rare that if someone walks into a community like that, they're going to know something's different here. And they're going to have to have an explanation. And the explanation is, you must be born again. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. There's the secret. Know Jesus. And so, really, people ought to be coming, you know, more than our going out and announcing, they ought to be coming to us and asking, would you all please explain how you all are living like this? And then we share the gospel. The gospel ought to be an answer to their question. And the question ought to be aroused because of the beloved community and the way that we're living together. That's what Paul is saying. So, we're going to have to make more progress than this, aren't we? We care for the fallen. Well, let's notice three things about it. Number one, it's by the Spirit. He says, you who are spiritual. I think that's a warning. That if you're not walking by the Spirit, you're going to need some help. And you're probably not going to be much help to anybody else. So don't think you can just charge into that broken relationship or that person in sin, charge into their lives and just tell them a few things. You know, say, let me tell you a few things I learned in AA. Boom, 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 boom. 
no, he says, those of you who are spiritual, those of you who are depending upon the Holy Spirit and know Him personally and have invited Him into His life, this is a job for you. So, gentlemen, let me just say, if you have the Spirit and you know it, this is a job for you to be a restorer for people who fall. And we have people in Amen Bible study every year who have had significant fallings spiritually. And we ought to know each other even in Amen Bible study well enough so that those of you who are full of the Spirit, you know you have the Spirit in your life, you ought to be restoring. It's a spiritual thing. Secondly, notice that how it's done. It's done gently. You should restore Him gently. Now, could I mention a few things about what this means, restoring someone gently? First of all, it means non-censoriously or non-judgmentally, non-harshly. We all had school moms who knew how to do this, and all you did was just tune them out because all she knew how to do was criticize. Some of you had mothers like that. Some of you had fathers like that. And for that reason, you, some of us just prefer not to get involved in conflict at all. And some of us have, frankly, adopted their ways. And that's the way that we do it. And what Paul is saying is that's not the Holy Spirit way. The Spirit does it differently. He does it gently. And when He fills us, we are gentle. And that means we're non-censorious, which means we're sympathetic, secondly. So we're non-judgmental. And we're sympathetic. Now, when I say non-judgmental, let me back up for a moment. I don't mean that you're not making judgments. Obviously, you, weren't, you wouldn't be talking to that person if you weren't making a moral judgment. The reason you're talking to him is you think the person's in sin. You just made a moral judgment. But there's a difference between judging a sin and judging a person and taking the place of God who alone is the judge of all of his creatures and decides who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, that's not your role. And sometimes, you know, people make us think they know who's supposed to go to heaven and who's supposed to go to hell. There's a difference between making a discerning judgment on good and evil and making a judgment on a human life. And we must make the distinction or we can't be gentle. So secondly, we're sympathetic, which means brother. I know whatever you've done, I've probably done three times as much. And it's true. If you'll just be honest with yourself, if you're helping somebody who's in sin, you don't have to use a lot of imagination. You're not going to burn a lot of time rekindling your memory for some things that you did that are worse by far than the very thing you're talking to this person about. And if you can't think of it, let's say that he committed murder and you never murdered anybody. Well, you can think of multiple examples when you wish someone were murdered. And Jesus says, you've murdered them in your heart. You've broken the sixth commandment. So there should be sympathy among us all. And none of us wants to be restored by a person who doesn't think he's a sinner and who is totally indebted to the grace of God for his standing before the Lord. None of us wants to be restored by anybody other than a person like that. But a person like that is going to find himself very sympathetic. Sometimes that's difficult when they've sinned against you. But you must do your best out of self-control to control your thinking, kind of get out of your own selfish paradigm and think about this, pers on this person's behalf and be sympathetic. Secondly, or thirdly rather, in gentleness you want to be collaborative. 
that is, this is not just your problem. We've got a problem. I'm taking that problem on with you, and I, can help, I think I can help you if you want me to. So when you go to a brother, you go collaboratively. You, as soon as you start talking to him, brothers, this is now your problem too. And if it's not going to be your problem, don't talk to him because the Spirit has not prepared you properly, and you're not going to go to him gently. The only way you can go gently is if you are fully engaged in being with him part of the solution to this problem. So don't go opening a can of worms that you don't plan to zip back up with him. So you get involved. If you're going to confront, you are now committed to the end of the process. And frankly, there's another reason that a lot of men don't love with a Christian love because they don't want to take the time. And Christian love requires your time and your energy and your emotional life to get involved with each other. So we go collaboratively. And fourthly, I want to say, we go hopefully. That is, there are all kinds of ways you can express hope. Sometimes it's by personal testimony. Brother, you committed adultery. Let me tell you, I'll let you in on a secret. So did I. And I think I can help you because God showed me how to get through it. Now, I couldn't say that, but some of you could. And what you find is when you're being restored yourself in the Lord, what happens is all those areas in your life where you got restored, they become your open doors to help other people. It's true. If you've been arrested for fraud, who's going to be the first one on the doorstep of the, of the guy in our midst here who gets arrested for fraud? It's going to be you because you understand. You know what it feels like. If someone... Uh, commits adultery, who's the first one that's going to go help and be restored? Someone who has been restored from that very sin. So we go collaboratively and hopefully because we've experienced restoration. So we have every right to be hopeful with that person. You know what? There's no sin that's too big for God. Don't get down on yourself. It never was about you in the first place. When Christ died for your sins on the tree, he died for that one too. And he knew about it when he died. And that's what was so painful. He was paying the price for it. And you'd be a knucklehead not to receive the free gift of his love and forgiveness. Come on now. You can do this by God's grace. I've done it over and over again. I've been restored, restored, restored. Every day is restoration. So you're hopeful with people. You show them a vision of what restored life is like. And if some of you have really hit the bottom and most of us have at some point in our life in some way, you know that if someone can just shine a shaft of light, just a little shaft of hopefulness, you know what? You, not somebody else, but you can live a life like this. It's like, it's like oil poured out on your head, as the psalmist said in Psalm 133. It's just beautiful. It's just lovely. It's just exactly what you need. Uh, I, I, I just have seen multiple cases of this where men have told me, you know, just this little thing that was said gave me a ray of hope and it was all I needed for the day. So when you're restoring, you've got to remember that the reason the person's being so defensive is because they can't face the darkness and the hopelessness of being labeled a failure. So if you're going to minister to them, you have to cut through all that darkness and show them the light of redemption. Then they can face themselves as they are and find repentance and faith and walk in the light and enjoy being a restored man. That's the key to gentleness. Now, some of you will say, you know, 
I, I just, this whole thing, Wilson, I mean, this is fine for preachers and elders and you guys who are supposed to be involved in this stuff. I just, I just don't think I can do this. I don't think I have the authority. Well, do you have any siblings? If you have siblings, you have the authority to be a brother. And that's all the authority you need. Now, let's take your brother, okay? Now, how many of us here have brothers? Okay. <clears throat> this room's full of problems. <laughs> you can get mad at your brother, and you can see your brother making some mistakes. We'll talk about him instead of you. Uh, and you're thinking, how, how can I get to him? Well, you're going to be careful, aren't you? Because you've got this historic relationship, competitive somewhat, and you've got to figure out how to break through all those competitive feelings and how he's going to take this and what this is going to do to the long-term relationship. But you're a brother. If you're a brother, you're going to keep figuring this out. You're going to work your way through. You're finally going to figure it out how you approach him and how you raise the issue because you want a normalized relationship with your brother. That's all we're talking about. That when you join Jesus, you join Jesus' church, and you got lots of brothers and sisters. And so with a brother, what you do is, let's say that he's involved in something that doesn't pertain to you, but he's involved in something that you think is sinful and destructive. And you go to him and you say, Bob, uh, I love you. I'm your brother. And I, I want to help you. And I think I may be seeing something in the area of your life where I might be able to help if you'd like for me to. And you just offer yourself. And if he rejects you, you say, look, I love you so much, I'm going to tell Mama about it too. <laughs> She'll be on your case. That's all we're talking about. If your brother doesn't respond or doesn't want your help, you say, well, I'll just tell Mama. Who's Mama? Your church. Just tell Mama. It's all in the family. And you love your brother. You don't want him to self-destruct. That's gentleness. But it's with this sympathetic, non-judgmental, collaborative, and hopeful attitude. It's love with which we go to him. Then notice this watchful. He says, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. And here, clearly, he's warning us about this judgmentalness. If we get involved in each other's moral lives, there is tremendous danger of being a, a cop. Hey, just stand on this stepladder and you'll see the sin. Or of being the critic. You know, that person, you're just always doing this. Always, and we think that we're maintaining our own righteousness by condemning the unrighteousness of everybody else. And when you do that, you're ready for a fall. If you want to see moral failure, oftentimes you'll see it from the most conservative people, the most traditional people, the, the loudest people will often be the ones who fall because self-righteousness eventually leads to the failure yourself. The gentleness and the sympathy does not lead to sin. That leads to righteousness, actually, because it's a spirit of completely depending upon the <coughs> Lord's grace and His empowerment that enables you to go gently to another person, and that's what enables you to keep yourself. So Paul says, in this ministry, you have to be very careful. Be watchful, lest you're the one who falls. Now, notice that we're not only caring for the fallen, but we're caring for the burdens. We carry each other's burdens, he says. So 
certainly if we're caring for the fallen, we are in this community of love, which is the sign that we belong to the Spirit. Uh, we, we do care for the fallen because that's a special burden. They're under the burden of self-condemnation. They're under the burden of guilt, and they need to be relieved. They need to be helped. Even if we have to confront them and oppose them, they need our help. But what about the person who's burdened in a number of ways? You can be burdened with the loss of a loved one. You can be burdened with financial uh, difficulties that are just way over your head. You can be burdened with depression. You can be burdened with all kinds of things. And what do we do? We carry each other's burden. So when we enter the community of love, when we enter Christ's church, we say to some, whatever degree is right, the burdens of this church become my burdens. And if you're in a large church, that's a lot of burdens. You say, how can I possibly do that? Well, what you do is you get into some small group. That's the reason we have small groups here or some Sunday school class. And you say, if you're a second, for example, which some of you are, you, you say, well, I can't, I can't carry the burdens of 3,800 adults because I don't know 3,800 adults. They, they're members of this church, but I don't know them. And, I, and my whole lifetime, I could never get to know them. Well, how about 150? That's the reason for Sunday schools, congregational communities. There's a place where you can live out the beloved community. You can live out this kind of rugged caring. You can carry the burdens of 150 people in community. It's like a little country church. So whatever your church you're in, if it's too big, break it down and find a way in which you can get involved in expressing and experiencing the, the carrying of each other's burdens. We're going to have to move. We carry our own loads, see. Look what he's saying. Here's how we help other people. We restore them when they're fallen. We carry their burdens when they've got them. And we carry our own load in this sense. Not that when we're hurting, we don't share with anybody. That's obviously not what he means. He's, if you look at the language of the text, you'll see what he means. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, why don't you realize that the biggest sinner in the room is you? Why don't you carry your own burden? Why don't you realize you're the one who's constantly falling? And you happen to be experiencing repentance and faith, and so you keep being restored. But you have this huge burden that's called yourself. And so accurately assess yourselves. That's what he's saying. And you'll notice in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, in the sense we were describing judging just a moment ago. And Paul says in Romans 12, accurately assess yourself. And then secondly, obviously, he means to mind our own business without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. So you're not stepping on the stepladder to look at somebody else's sin. You're in prayer on your knees looking into your own heart, your own sin. That's minding your own business. But when someone's caught in a sin against you or somebody else and you observe it, then you will take that burden on to add to your own burdens. You're already burdened. And you'll take those burdens and add them to yours. So it's not like for the first time you got a burden. you got to handle a moral problem. No, you already had a moral problem. It's you. But you're taking the burdens that you already had and adding to them. And that way we carry each other's burdens by first of all starting with our own burden. And if you're not finding repentance and faith, then you need to take some of your burden and let it be transferred over to another brother. And he'll carry your burden along with his burden. That's the way it works. That is a spirit-transformed set of relationships. Now, to move quickly in verses 6 through 10, 
Notice that what else Paul is saying about the Spirit. He transforms relationships in a dramatic way, but he also yields a harvest. The Spirit brings about something, a real harvest. First of all, in ministry, and this is interesting, uh, the apostle says, anyone who receives instruction must share all good things. And let me just say, uh, gentlemen, my experience at Second Presbyterian has been unbelievable. I mean, they share more than all good things. Well, I guess you can't get more than all good things. But they share more than would, would be ever expected by anybody. And those on our staff are just so grateful. And I, if you're from another church, I hope that your staff can say the same thing, that you're really sharing life with them that you're holding them up, and that if they spend time preaching to you on a Sunday morning, you're spending time working for them during the week so that they can eat and have housing and their kids can have a good education, and you're taking that to heart in your churches. And you take that as a brotherly concern. Why? Because your preacher is sowing seed, and you're bearing fruit in your lives. And because of that, you usually do better than if you didn't have the Spirit in your life. You usually do better economically. And Paul says, and Jesus says it too, you know, if someone's sharing with you spiritually, you share with them materially. And it, I can just say from personal experience here, it's just such a delight to have people share with you too much, actually, and spoil you. And don't worry about spoiling a preacher. But I want to say here, you all are about to spoil us. You're so kind. And that's the kind of relationship that ought to be there in ministry. There ought to be, there ought to be the sharing back and forth, willingly sacrificing for each other in the ministry of the Word. Secondly, in sanctification. And Paul says, look, there's a basic rule here. You can't mock God. You, you, you can't do things behind His back. He sees everything. And what you sow will reap. You will reap. And if, it's, if you're sowing to the sinful nature, you're going to reap destruction. Sow to the whirlwind, says Hosea. You're going to reap destruction. You think you're going to get by with this? Maybe you get by with it for 10 years. Maybe you get by with it for this life. But you don't get by with it for the next life. It reaps destruction. Do you think that if you're sowing to the Spirit, there's no reward? Oh, poor me. You think you're a victim? Are you kidding me? When you sow to the Spirit, you get eternal life. You get the riches of the universe. You get it all. So maybe it takes 10 years before you see some material uh, response from it. Maybe a lifetime, which is more typical. You invest in this whole lifetime because you believe that the eternal life is going to be one of great wealth and riches beyond anything you can imagine. You believe that. And Paul says it's a basic principle. You will reap what you sow. Now notice notice also it works in generosity. And when you give to those who are in need, whether it's your time or your emotions or your affections or your money, when you give to those in need, you will be blessed. You say, well, you mean right now? No, I don't. I mean in God's economy. And the big problem of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel is that they say, if you write this check and send it into our ministry, you can expect a blessing, like right now. You want to get out of your financial troubles? Send us a check. That's, a, that's from the pit of hell. It's from hell. What Jesus is saying is you expand your scope to eternity. And you realize that God is no one's debtor. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And He is not going to fall short on blessing you. But the blessing will come when Jesus Christ returns and in fullness we receive a reward, but we're going to receive it. So don't become weary, number one. Secondly, do good. And where do you do good? You do it to all. And you especially focus on the believers. So we do good to all, like the Good Samaritan. 
but we focus especially on the believers. For Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, he's talking about the church. When you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it also unto me. So when we focus on the church, we are especially focusing our affections on this distinctive Christian household love. Now that is the fruit of the Spirit, being love, in a very practical way in Galatians 6. Next time, we're going to look at the crux of this matter. Really, what is at the heart of the whole thing? It comes out at the end of his letter in a wonderful way. And I'll see you next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of Galatians. Thank you for this wonderful freedom into which you have birthed us, the freedom of the life of the Spirit, so that we can live life the way it is meant to be lived. Help us in our personal relationship with you and help us in our relationship with our brothers that we may be instruments of your peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.